Hello and welcome to the Psych Summaries podcast. My name is Hannah and I will be having conversations with clinicians, academics and experts that have applications to the field of psychology and mental health. They have many years of experience, meaning they are trusted voices in niche subjects. But I invite you to consume the content with a critical perspective, since a one-size-fits-all approach rarely applies to mental health. I hope you learned something and enjoy listening. Today I am chatting to the incredible Brendan Stubbs, who has been ranked a top three influential exercise researcher globally, has worked clinically for 20 years and leads several research programs. He is the perfect exemplar in how to read research. I am really, really thrilled that I got to chat to him, but just wanted to make a quick note to apologize for the sound quality on the recording. I have done my very best to get rid of the white noise in the background. So a huge warm welcome to you, Brendan. Thank you so much for joining today. I guess it would be really cool if we could start by hearing whether this was a role that you always planned and how your career got you to where you are today. Thanks, Hannah, so much again for your really kind introduction and all of the great work that you do. It's, it's fantastic. Really privileged to be here. Did I have a plan? No, absolutely not. I've just come to know that we live our life forwards, but we only understand it when we look backwards. I graduated as a physio in 2003. My mum was head of a psychiatric hospital and she invited me and sort of nudged me to sort of get off the sofa and stop, you know, dossing. And before I knew it, I was having an interview with a head of physio in a, you know, mental health hospital. And that's where it sort of started, really. And, and I've ended up in, you know, this quite unusual place. Yeah, been in mental health pretty much ever since. That's really amazing that your mum was heading up the psychiatric ward. I mean, what a difficult job. I worked on one a couple of years ago and it's tough. So on that point, I've heard about the term lifestyle psychiatry. Are you able to explain how physical activity comes into that, please? And, uh, you know, really important question. So lifestyle psychiatry is, is really the notion that you know, there are several aspects around lifestyle behaviours, whether it be what we eat, how we move, how sleep affects us, and several other things which are related to the onset of mental health conditions and can also be targeted to be improved in a mental health condition. Sometimes the concept is not because people talk about social inequalities and the difficulties some people may have, for instance, around accessing tech-based stuff or accessing gyms, and you're not able to work, for instance, because you're depressed or you may have schizophrenia. An interesting thing is the SMILES diet. Again, it's not my area of expertise, but I've, I've been involved with you know, quite a bit of work with these Jacker and team. They looked at people with depression to see whether going shopping and giving people Mediterranean-style food could help improve depressive symptoms as an intervention. They found that not only did it improve people's depressive symptoms, but also they demonstrated in an economic model that it was actually cheaper to go and eat a healthier option food than the sort of Western junk food diet. So it kind of 
helps to negate some of the criticisms of lifestyle psychiatry that it's a bit more elitist or for people who who can afford to do things. Felice and her team had health economists coming in and showing eating this way was actually cheaper. Now getting more specifically to a point around movement. Well, we are moving beings. You know, we, we are meant to move when we can. You know, some people find it difficult for a variety of reasons, physical con- conditions, mental health conditions. But there's lots we can do to support people. And fundamentally, we're moving beings. And just around the evidence more broadly, we and others have demonstrated consistently that if you look at big numbers of people and you look at people without any depression and anxiety and you look at their physical activity levels or their muscular strength and or cardiorespiratory fitness, which is how well your heart and lungs are responding, we found consistently with huge data sets that these are independent protective factors for having common mental health conditions such as depression and anxiety. We published a paper in the American Journal of Psychiatry in 2018, and we demonstrated that people who had engaged in physical activity for 150 minutes versus those that didn't had around 35% reduced risk or odds of developing depression in the future in seven and a half years. We've identified that strong muscles, good heart weight and good amount of moving are all independent factors that can protect our mental health and fit under the umbrella of lifestyle psychiatry. There's been other really interesting studies where they've looked at genes of people with depression. So anyone who's had depression or mental health condition knows it's complex, it's multifactorial, it's often not one event, it's a combination of things. And what they did in this particular study is they looked at people who had identical gene risk of depression and identical gene risk in another group. And they compared the physical activity levels of the two. And they found that even if you were genetically predisposed in both groups, if you were more active, you were less likely to develop depression, even if your genetic profile was equally at risk than other people. So that goes to add into some of the kudos around why there's physical activity, movement, having strong muscles, protect us against mental health conditions. That's incredible. I love that you brought up the SMILES trial. I found it such an interesting one. I mean, it was the first of its kind, really, wasn't it? But in terms of physical activity, I know you've given a figure for what is a baseline. Is that what the government recommend? And are you supposed to split it up over the week? Can that be a variety of different things? And for those that don't necessarily suffer with something, it's helpful for them too, right? Of course. And and we all have physical health. And there's times when our physical health is not great. And we all have mental health. Of course we do. There's times when we don't feel great. And there's times when our mental health is, you know, compromised and we need help. So let's completely destigmatize this issue. There's, there's no issue if I came on here and talked to you about I've had my knee, knee replacement or knee surgery. But if I come on here and talk to you about my experiences of depression, for instance, it'd be a very different conversation. So getting back to your first question, what does the government recommend? And I probably refer to the World Health Organization updated guidelines, which were updated a month ago. 
pretty much every country tends to follow them soon after. So the new guidelines for general adults, they recommend that you do 150 up to 300 minutes over the course of a week. And that sounds like a really scary number for a lot of us. Me too. But they've put enough a limit and said, look, you know, beyond 300 minutes, we can't say there is continual benefit. They also recommend that you do two days where you strengthen your muscles. So that could be doing gentle Pilates, yoga style exercises where you're sort of moving in certain positions and holding and stressing your muscles. Or it could be more traditional strength training, which is more commonly known as resistance training, such as workouts that include push-ups, sit-ups, going to the gym and lifting weights. And that's really important. I know 150 minutes sounds like a lot, but they recommend you do 10 minute bursts, you know, 10 minutes during your lunch break, 10 minutes at the start of the day, 10 minutes at the end of the day, for instance, that could be a brisk walk just to get your heart and lungs moving. So they recognize that many people struggle to get to 150 minutes and really emphasize that making small incremental goal-based changes are really important to getting people up to speed. They're not expecting everyone to get up to 300 minutes instantly. Many people struggle for a variety of reasons to engage in physical activity. So the guidelines are very inclusive. Just do the best that you can. Have a little bit of a walk and you will feel better. And how does our brain change as a result of all of this activity? Great question. Well, our brains are constantly changing. You and I talking At the moment, you know, there's various different aspects in your brain where there's neuronal changes and networks and signal changes happening. The brain is a constantly engaged organ. The brain's the centre of everything that we consciously do and subconsciously do. There has been some really interesting studies. And some of the stuff that we've done has been looking at an area of the brain called the hippocampus. And this is an area within the brain which is really important for emotions, how we feel, consolidating long-term memory to short-term memory. And we've demonstrated over a 12-week period that you can get significant and meaningful improvements in the volume of this particular area of the brain, which is just absolutely fantastic. So that is really, really interesting. But also there's some interesting studies in Japan where they got people in live functional magnetic resonance imaging scanners. They randomized the group. One group sat still and they watched their brain live and the activity. The other group cycled for 10 minutes while they were in the MRI scanner. The researchers looked at what was the electrical activity of just 10 minutes of light cycling. And, And what they found matches what what we've done in the long term is that just 10 minutes 10 minutes of light activity can result in real changes in electrical activity in the um, emotional processing areas of your brain such as the hippocampus we've also done work of how it impacts the prefrontal cortex and people at risk of depression and demonstrated that you can get meaningful changes in prefrontal cortex which help a plan and movements and thoughts and feelings and probably the final point is just to say that when we exercise our brains are constantly changing 
But what we know and what we've tested in randomised controlled trials in people who are depressed, and it's very evident in people who are not depressed as well, that just a single bout of of exercise or movement can result in meaningful release of really important hormones or chemicals that help protect us. So we've demonstrated that you know brief bouts of activity can result in improvements in a chemical called brain-derived neurotrophic factor or BDNF. This is like your brain's fertilizer. So, you know, I've talked a lot about your brain as a live organ and lots of cells going on, but that's continually renewing and areas that are being used more grow and areas that are being used less shrink. This helps the growing process. It's like your brain fertilizer. And another area which we're increasingly interested in is an endocannabinoid system. And this is very closely linked to how we feel pain, how we process emotion. And there's emerging evidence that this could be a really key area of the brain and the associated chemicals that are released when this area is stimulated. I think a lot of people talk anecdotally about this stuff, but you've clearly done so many research studies. And that does bring me on to something I wanted to ask you. A lot of what I see is about low mood and depression. So is this firstly causal? So more activity causally improves mood or reduces chances of depression? Or is it just correlational? And secondly, if there are other things that have been shown to improve, i.e. psychosis, anxiety. There's some really great questions in there, Hannah, and I'll break that down. Within research, we have different types of study designs. So one of the studies I referenced earlier, I talked about 260,000 people where we followed them up with no depression at baseline. And then we looked seven and a half years later to see, is there a relationship between physical activity at this time point? where we measure lots of factors such as age, physical health conditions, and lots of other things, and depression in the future. Clearly, we're just observing people. We're not, we're not saying do anything, and we're just observing what happens to people, and does the amount of physical activity relate to your risk of depression? And we've shown that it does. Many studies have shown that it does. This is only a correlation at the moment. We're looking at the relationship and it's not a cross-sectional study, and a cross-sectional study is where you're looking at one time point. This is directional research, and this has been backed up by important studies. So it's beyond my main area of circle of competence, so I'll keep it relatively brief. But there is a really fancy way of undertaking something called Mendelian randomization studies. These are looking at specific genes for a condition, and in this case, looking at physical activity. And through Mendelian randomization studies, what you can do is look, is there a causal pathway, i.e. Does, does physical activity causally reduce your risk of depression? And colleagues have published papers showing that, yes, it does. So we have the data showing prospectively it does. Now we have this genetic data backing it up some interesting experiments were done where they asked people in their early 20s who were not depressed or stressed one group was randomized to sit still do nothing and be sedentary for a week the other group was told to carry on as usual 
and what they did is look at people's mental health and mood and just what a week did and they found that in a randomized controlled study those who were in the sedentary group not only became more sedentary but started becoming more stressed and anxious and this type of study design randomized controlled trials is the best form of evidence to say whether there is a true causal link and again it's difficult in this context there was another subsequent study with 60 people at UCL which advanced this and they randomized 60 young people no mental health comorbidities asked them to do the same thing for four weeks sit still be more sedentary do nothing the other group controlled as usual randomized controlled trial and they found that the sedentary group became more depressed anxious and there was an inflammatory response you know a real physiological response they found there was an increase in some of the factors which i don't think i've touched upon too much such as like interleukin-6 or interleukin-2-4 c-reactive protein and for your listeners, you may be able to expand on this more eloquently. These are markers of inflammation. And inflammation is really helpful if I bang my elbow or, or burn my finger. You know, my body becomes inflamed to protect me. So it's really helpful. But in the context of what we're learning about mental health conditions is we're really understanding that there is tends to be an increased inflammation when there's not an elbow injury, when there's not a burn finger on the stove. There's just this continual increase in inflammation. And studies have, have, have shown that you can also reduce inflammation by taking part in, in physical activity. And that is really important because that's one of the key causal pathways. And your second question, there is lots of evidence about other conditions. Um, one of my very talented PhD students, Garcia Ashton Franks, wrote about what is the evidence base for physical activity and exercise in all mental health conditions, you know, ranging from stress, post-traumatic stress disorder, general anxiety disorder, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and essentially demonstrated very good evidence for depression good evidence that in schizophrenia you can improve physical health quality of life cognition there's evidence in ptsd that you can reduce symptoms of people help people feel better improve people's physical health and also in anxiety related conditions prevention is possible clearly if you have a, a traumatic incident or something then no amount of running is going to make that go away we need to seek help of course we do but a population level, we've shown that you can prevent the onset of these conditions. And looking when people do have these conditions, we've been able to demonstrate that you can get a meaningful improvement. Clearly, it's so important for physical and mental health. Now, do you think of all predictors of mental illness, this could be one of the most important protective factors i know that community and socioeconomic status sleep all of these things nutrition they come into it in your humble opinion do you think that physical health is up there at the top i mentioned previously that you know mental health more broadly 
is complex, as is our physical health. You know, it's often not one event. You know, I can't isolate it to one particular incident, but it's like a cumulative effects. But we do know having a sound mind and a sound body is really important and they're completely interchanged and interlinked. Now I am biased and I'll be upfront biased, but I'm open to discussion with other people about their opinions and, and, and also data and personal experiences as well. And I think when you look at all of the individual lifestyle factors which you mentioned, you'll consistently see that physical activity is mentioned, whether it's dementia, whether it's depression. So yes, physical activity is very, very important. Any movement is good for you. Movement of the body is important, whether you like yoga, pilates, walking, standing, gardening. Physical activity is defined as any bodily movement that increases energy expenditure. You know, blinking is physical activity. I'm not going out saying, you know, go start blinking and you'll feel great, but that's just to emphasize the point. So I will very much say with people who are, you know, at their lowest point, come alongside you and let's just let's just try and walk downstairs in the garden let's just try and gradually increase the amount you're doing and i think and i'm talking in the context of people who are demotivated and may have mental health symptoms or a condition in my experience setting specific achievable goals is really important in the first instance really important in my in my clinical experience that people have early successes and wins. So whether that be just five minutes of walking, whether that be you know, walking around the block, you know, if you're doing looking at your steps and you're doing 500 a day, just increase it by 10%. Getting onto your second question about types of activity, we know in behavioural science and exercise psychology that you're much more likely to do any type of physical activity and engage in it if you have success early on and you enjoy it and find pleasure in it. So the key thing for, you know, behavior change and engagement is finding a movement you enjoy. It can be dancing, you know, as simple as that. Start with realistic goals, find some early pleasure and early wins, and then just keep going. I guess as well, if you're doing something because you enjoy it, then there's going to be less things going on in your brain, i.e. if you don't enjoy it, you probably are going to become quite irritable or, you know, frustrated and maybe after you just regret it. Obviously, there is difficulty when you are really struggling or you're unwell, but there has to be some sort of motivation or you just are not going to have long lasting change. I wanted to ask one more question and it was something you brought up earlier and it was about dementia. I do know that a lot of people are talking about how activity does impact an aging brain. I was wondering if you could deep dive into it very briefly just to explain because I think if you have understanding of how physical activity can protect your brain then there might be some sort of juicy kind of motivation in it. Sure. Well, it's a great question. It's a big question, you know, for all of the concerns. We're very concerned about mental health. You know, we're very concerned about brain health and looking after people's brains and dementia within that bracket. We've demonstrated in physical health terms that people who are older and followed over time and walk slower have difficulty doing things such as sit to stand, have less balance. 
are more likely to develop depression. So keeping your body healthy is really, really important to protect you against the risk of dementia in the future. We need to look at this as a lifelong thing across the whole life course. It's never too early, it's never too late to start incorporating movement as an evidence-based approach to keep our brains healthy. And before the onset of dementia or specific diagnosis of, say, perhaps the most common form of dementia, Alzheimer's disease, or some of the less common but, you know, really quite profound dementia, such as dementia with Lewy bodies, there are various stages that happen before. Often there's this stage of mild cognitive impairment where people are starting to, you know, forget things and minor changes are happening in people. And that's a really key critical stage where we can inter you know, intervene for people with exercise to change that trajectory but probably the best chance we've got is before that is people who've got what we call in research subjective memory changes but no cognitive impairment so if i did a cognitive test with you as a doctor in a hospital and did like a common one like the mini mental state examination people with subjective memory complaints would generally do fine with that but there'd be no objective if you started measuring their brains and stuff as there's no real changes. The evidence suggests throughout the life course, the more active you are, the less likely you are to develop dementia. So, you know, that's been shown in numerous meta-analyses and just for anyone listening, this is a combination from different studies together to address big, big important questions from all over the world. And they've pretty much consistently shown that having an active lifestyle can be really important for protecting against dementia. And for people who do get to that stage, there's good evidence that physical activity can help, you know, other physical healthcare areas in your brain. And again, getting back to mechanisms about why on earth would movement help keep my brain healthy and protect me against, you know, this really great concern of memory loss. I'm sure we all know someone and have a family member with dementia. Movement has been shown to consistently, prior to onset, really target the areas of the brain which are associated with dementia risk and onset. So one key area of the brain which people and neuroscientists are fascinated about is the hippocampus. And again, this is an area which is really implicated in the onset of dementia. And what we and others have found is that exercise can have a really profound effect across the life course in terms of protecting this area and also reducing people's risk of dementia. So it's never too early to start and it's never too late to start. The key thing is finding a movement that you enjoy, you find challenging and that you just get started. Well, thank you. I think that was an amazing point to end on. If there's anything that is terrifying in the future, it is the loss of memory. As you say, so many people have experienced it firsthand through family members or friends who know someone. It's it's an increasing concern. So if anything, I hope that that's a good motivation to get <laughs> engaged in physical activity. 
Brendan, thank you so much for your time. I'm so grateful. I will direct people to your social media. And is there any other place that you recommend people checking out your research? I know you've written numerous papers, but if there's anywhere specifically, that would be great. Sure. And and just to say thank you so much for inviting me and for anybody who's listened. um, I'm really grateful that you've taken time to listen to this. So thank you very much for listening and, and staying with me as I talk. I've often been told I've got a voice which sends people to sleep. So hopefully it didn't. But if anybody is interested, the best place to find me is to look on a website called PubMed, which is where all research is stored. And you can see what I've done. You put my name in there. Alternatively, I'm happy for people to email me with questions. Brilliant. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful for your time. And don't worry, I don't think people will have fallen asleep. They'll have been hanging on every word because it has such profound implications for our health. So yeah, thanks again. And hopefully, as the research develops, we can do a follow up chat because there are numerous things I could have gone on about. So thank you again. That would be great. Really enjoy that. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode with Brendan. He is a fountain of knowledge and I highly, highly recommend you following his page, which I will link in the information. If you are interested in hearing more, then please do follow at Psych Summaries on Instagram. I have also recently migrated to TikTok. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time.